It is my conviction that the greatest need for the church today is to see Jesus as He really is, to see the, the unobscured, clear, simple picture of Jesus as He Himself revealed Himself to us. And, and that will be our goal as we work through the Gospel of Mark throughout the fall and winter, and uh, we should be done by Easter is my plan. Mark is, is a great gospel to do that with, to a book of the Bible where you see Jesus clearly, simply presented to us, because I think that's what Mark is trying to do. He's trying to, to give us a clear picture of Jesus on his own terms, on Jesus' own terms. In fact, as you read the Gospel of Mark, and I encourage you to read the whole thing just to kind of get a feel for it, 16 chapters, I don't know how long it will tell you, take you, but not very long, you can read it. And as you read it, you will see sort of this gradual revelation of who Jesus is, and people questioning it and bringing in their own assumptions, and Jesus almost hiding His identity until He's able to reveal it in the right way. And so we'll kind of work through that as we read and, and teach through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is probably the earliest of the four Gospels, probably the first Gospel written. It is also the shortest. Uh, Mark uh, is concerned with what happened. It's, it's action-oriented. There's not as much teachings of Jesus as some of the other Gospels have, but there's a lot of action, a lot of miracles, a lot of things Jesus did. Uh, the main concern, I think, is to present Jesus as he is. The author of the gospel, Mark, or sometimes he's called John or John Mark in other passages of Scripture, he was not an apostle himself, but he was part of the earliest Christian community in Jerusalem. And then he traveled with Paul, the apostle, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And then he got connected to Peter. In fact, Peter calls him his spiritual son, in 1 Peter 5.13. And so most scholars, based on tradition, what the early church said, and what we see in the text itself, most scholars believe that Mark's gospel is written under the direction of Peter, and is based on Peter's own memories of being with Jesus. Now, the gospel moves quickly. Mark's favorite word is immediately or translated at once sometimes. He uses this 40, 41 times throughout the book. Short book, 41 times he says immediately. He wants us to keep moving. Uh, one commentator said that Mark is breathless. When you read Mark, he's kind of breathless. Uh, he runs like a naked man running through a garden. That's how, how he writes. Now, you may know that there's a passage later in the book of Mark in chapter 14 that describes that incident, right? When Jesus is arrested, and there's a young man who's just following Jesus and threw something on, and, and then somebody grabs his clothing, and he just runs away naked. That's why I'm bringing this up. It's probably Mark. Most people think it's, <laughs> it's Mark um, writing about himself. He's giving you the true record of what, what happened. But as you, as you read the book of Mark, you, you get a feeling that, that he's, he's anxious to move forward. He's anxious to tell us more about Jesus and give us that clear picture of who Christ is. So I'd like us to preach through this book 
in the way that it's written. I almost called this series Breathless, and, and then I thought that's too cute. I stopped myself. Um, but, but I want us to, to work through it in maybe a little bit of larger passages and maybe not being able to get into every detail and every word of the text, but definitely get the feel and the, the kind of the current of, of the book and ultimately get the picture of Jesus that Mark wants us to get. So that's my plan. I, I hope we cover probably eight chapters by the time Advent starts and then we'll finish it after Christmas and into Lent and, and finish on Easter. So, larger passages, but we'll get the meaning out of them and try to stay true to how Mark actually wrote the book. So, our first passage is what Kathy read for us, is a prologue. It's sort of the introduction to the whole book. And Mark begins the book by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A gospel is a word we use all the time at church, right? What does it mean? It means good news, literally. It means good news. And in the Greco-Roman world in which Mark writes, the gospel, this word, is used of any sort of grand announcement. So, for example, if a new king is born, right, an heir to the throne is born, then there will be a gospel, there will be a proclamation, a joyous announcement that a king is born. Or if, if there's a military victory and the enemy is defeated, there will be a gospel, there will be a pronouncement, a declaration of victory. The news would come to the people that there is a victory and we are safe. Now that's in the culture, but in the Bible, because Mark and others are using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see this word gospel, the Greek word in the translation of the Old Testament, referring to God's intervention in human history. So the good news, the gospel in the Old Testament is the, the time of God's coming and fixing things and redeeming things. In fact, the passage that we read in the beginning of the service, Isaiah 52, talks about the good news, the gospel of God coming and God saving His people. So this is what Mark is saying to us right from the beginning of the book. He says, he says this, is, this is the beginning of the joyful announcement about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants to set it up. He says, I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm going to give you an introduction to who Jesus is so you can get the full scope of what this announcement, this news means for humanity. God has intervened in human history in the person of Jesus, this long-awaited king, this long-prophesied Messiah. Very God, the Son of God, is coming to intervene, coming to rescue God's people. And he says, we're going to start in the beginning. So what's the beginning? It's interesting, right? He says, this is the gospel. We'll start in the beginning. What's the beginning? Because if you read Luke, right? Luke begins with, prophecy about the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of John the Baptist, the Zechariah, like all the two chapters, right? I mean, you, and then you get chapter two, you get to the birth of Jesus. And then John starts uh, theologically. John says, in the beginning, we're going to the very, very beginning, you know, and the beginning was God, you know, the beginning was the word. So he gives us a theological introduction Matthew starts with the genealogy. He says, well, if you want to know about Jesus, let's talk about his family. 
But Mark is different. It's interesting. Mark doesn't start with Jesus' childhood. He doesn't start uh, with uh, theological, kind of this, this almost cosmological introduction. He starts with these three events. And he frames the whole gospel, the whole life and death and resurrection of Jesus with these three aspects of Jesus' backstory. Now, Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, begins when he, in verse 14, when he starts preaching about the kingdom. But before that, there's three things that happen here, and he gives us these three aspects. I think Mark's beginning is his intentional introduction of the gospel. When he says this is the beginning of the gospel, he says, let me introduce the gospel in the right way. Let me frame it in the right way. Let me give you the context so we can understand Jesus when Jesus finally starts his public ministry. So I'd like us to consider the gospel, to understand, to begin to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by seeing Jesus in the Word, in the water, and in the wilderness in the Word, in the water, and in the wilderness. To begin to get an accurate picture of Jesus, we must see Jesus in the Word of John the Baptist, in the water of Jesus' baptism, and in the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan himself. Okay, look at verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this is a prophecy. Mark begins with a prophecy about John, this this person who will come to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus. John the Baptist, sent to prepare people for the Messiah. And Mark is telling us right off the bat, he tells us that the gospel is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the promises given by God through his prophets in the Old Testament. He begins right away by telling us, you can't understand Jesus unless you understand what happened before Jesus came, unless you understand the Bible, unless you understand the Old Testament, unless you understand what John the Baptist came to do. Now, it's interesting that Mark says, uh, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he's quoting the most famous of the of the writing prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah. But what he actually quotes is he quotes two different prophets. He adds Malachi to that. And he tells us that this isn't just one prophecy. There's a a whole host of promises that come from the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfills them all. We need to start thinking about Jesus, dealing with Jesus, based on how the Bible itself frames Jesus tells us about him, how how it anticipates him. Now, John the Baptist himself, this prophet that comes before Jesus to prepare us for Jesus, is an embodiment of the Old Testament prophetic ministry. Now, we are told that he's wearing strange clothes, right? Big belt, he's eating locusts, he's eating honey in the wilderness. Why is all this? Well, he's, he's embodying something. He looks like Elijah. Elijah used to dress like that. He is like Moses in the wilderness leading his people. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. Why? Like a new exodus, he's welcoming people into God's kingdom because the king is coming. So all these things are important, and in some ways, 
John the Baptist is the culmination of the Old Testament prophetic ministry. And so Mark starts with John and says, I'm going to frame the life and ministry of Jesus, and I'm going to start with the Old Testament categories, prophecies, patterns, promises. This is where we need to start. Now, John calls people to repentance, just like every prophet in the Old Testament. And look at what he preaches. His message is actually about Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. After me, John says, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's ministry is to point to Jesus, to prepare people, to connect the Old Testament to what Jesus is coming to do, to connect those promises to the fulfillment of them in Jesus. He is not himself the deliverer, but he is preparing people for the deliverer, the one who can change them from within, not just wash them with water, but wash them with the Holy Spirit. One who can finally bring them into the rest of the land that God promised one who can bring them out of their sins, out of the slavery of sin, just like he did with the people of God in Egypt. Now, all of this tells us that to understand Jesus, we need the context of the Bible. We need the context of the Old Testament. Because Jesus comes as fulfillment, as response, as a culmination of all the things that we read about specifically in the Old Testament. In fact, it can be said of the Old Testament that it was written to give us the categories for understanding Jesus, his person, and his work. If Jesus came out of nowhere with no foundation, no context, no prophecies, no stories of the Old Testament, I think we would have a very, very difficult time to understand what he's doing, what he's about, what he's saying. But because we have the Old Testament, we can connect the dots and we can see how something that was revealed to us in part now is revealed to us in full. Something that was set up for us so we can expect the culmination of that. Now Jesus comes. You know, things like covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. Well, if there was no covenant with Abraham, how can we understand the new covenant, the new agreement that Jesus comes to initiate with his people? There's the exodus from Egypt. What is that about? Well, it tells us about sin and redemption and the, the blood sacrifice and God's intervention and God's rescue, God's promise of, of a land, a home for us. I mean, all those categories are set up in the Old Testament. There's the temple, very precisely built. It was just the right material so that priests can do what they're supposed to do sacrifices are brought in a specific way. All those things set it up for Jesus to show up and say, I am the sacrifice. I'm the priest. I'm the new temple. Well, if there's no old temple, if there's no priesthood, if there's no sacrifices, we don't understand what Jesus means and what he does. You have the law, the kingdom. I mean, all those things in the Old Testament, without those, we, we don't have the categories to understand Jesus. And to understand anyone, you need their background, you need their backstory. That's what we see in the Old Testament with Jesus. The Old Testament is really is the background, is the backstory of Jesus. And so we get to actually see 
why Jesus is the way he is, why he came to do certain things because of the Old Testament. Let me take a a sharp turn here and give you an illustration. Uh, I think the the best James Bond movie is Skyfall. I'll just declare it now, okay? I have a complicated relationship with those movies because there's a lot of it that I like and there's some things that make me very uncomfortable. But Skyfall is a good movie because it helps us see why James Bond is the way he is. Because in the course of the movie, and this is, I don't know, it's been over 10 years since it's been out, so I'll spoil it a little bit, okay? At the end of the movie, that the very protracted last third of the movie, right, is, is when they go to his ancestral home in Scotland. They go to Skyfall. Skyfall is this, this place in Scotland. And all of a sudden, you start realizing, oh, this is why his personality is this way. This is why certain things, this is why he reacted. This is why he's so attached to M. Like, you start thinking through all those things, and all of a sudden, you have a totally different, much fuller perspective on the person. Well, this is the Old Testament for Jesus. That's his skyfall. You go back to the Old Testament, you see, this is where Jesus is from. This is why he is the way he is. This is, this is why he comes to do these things. All of a sudden, all these things start making sense. From Skyfall to the 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle. Hold on. Okay. J.C. Ryle says, there was nothing unforeseen and suddenly contrived in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. In the very beginning of Genesis, we find it predicted that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. All through the Old Testament, we find the same event foretold with constantly increasing clearness. It was a promise often renewed to patriarchs and repeated by prophets that a deliverer and redeemer should one day come. His birth, his character, his life, his death, his resurrection, his forerunner were all prophesied of long before he came. Redemption has worked out, was worked out and accomplished in every step, just as it was written. We should always read the Old Testament with the desire to find something in it about Jesus Christ. We study this portion of the Bible with little profit if we can see it nothing but Moses and David and Samuel and the prophets. Let us search the books of the Old Testament more closely. It was said by him whose words can never pass away, These are the scriptures that testify about me. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is to take Jesus out of the biblical context. See him somehow apart from the Bible and and cut off large portions of the Bible as unrelated to who Jesus is, what he's come to do. Now, you know, some believe that Jesus is a great moral teacher like many before or after him. But is this how the Bible presents it? No. No. Jesus taught, of course, had great moral lessons, but that's not why he came. That's not really who he is. Some believe that Jesus is a revolutionary leader who came to to liberate his people from political and military oppression. And his life was tragically cut short by the elites finally getting to him and murdering him. Is that what Jesus is about. I mean, you can, you can make that interpretation if you're not dealing with Scripture. But if you're looking at Scripture, you will see the kind of liberation he actually came to bring. 
The kind of oppression he was against, and it is much bigger than your run-of-the-mill revolutionary. Some people see Jesus as not much more than a therapist who's able to help us get rid of our guilt and support us in our personal struggles. So we go to him when we feel bad or when we hurt, and he helps us. He's just a good listener. You know, we can tell him anything. We can sing these songs to him that, that just help us process emotions. Now, is that true? Well, it's true in a sense. But that's not the picture of Jesus you get in Scripture. If you limit Jesus to that, you don't get the real Jesus. So to get a, a true picture of Jesus, to see him clearly, to see him simply, you have to look at Scripture. You have to see him in the context of the Bible, and you have to know the Old Testament. It's not, ours is not just a New Testament religion. It's a whole Bible. You have to see it in the context of everything. If you want to see the real Jesus, you must go to the Bible, because this is where Jesus reveals himself to us. Not as we might imagine him, not as we might prefer him to be, but as he really is. So you must meet Jesus in the Word. And this is where Mark is pushing us. Now, secondly, we must meet him in the water. Look at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, this is a surprising thing. I mean, it was definitely surprising for John. We have other accounts where John says, I can't, I can't do that. Why are you coming to me to be baptized by me? And everybody who knew Jesus would be surprised by that. Why would this Messiah, why would this Son of God, why would this perfect being come and be baptized by John? I mean, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. You're supposed to come and declare you to be a sinner. And you're coming to say, God, I, I am a sinner. I'm cut off from you, and I need some. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to fix me. That's the baptism of John. He's preparing people. He's helping them become aware of their sins so that when Jesus comes, they can be delivered by grace. In fact, baptism in John's time was something that only non-Jews did. Only those Gentiles who somehow they got connected to the Jewish religion, they would go through the ritual of being baptized and cleansed and being incorporated into God's covenant community. But John comes and says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you're a Pharisee, if you're a sinner, whatever. You come in the water. Because we all need to realize we need to repent of our sins and we need somebody to come help us. That's the message of John. He said everybody is sinful and everybody needs this deliverer that is to come. And then the deliverer comes and he says, baptize me. I mean, imagine what John is thinking. Is this the deliverer? If he is, then why does he want to acknowledge that he is sinful? If he's not the deliverer, then who is? But Jesus comes and insists, in fact, insists that John will baptize him. Now, why? Because Jesus came to take our place so that we can take his. In the water of baptism, Jesus identified with us 
so that we can identify with Him. We cannot begin to understand the gospel, which is what Mark is driving us to consider. We cannot understand the gospel without understanding this idea of substitution. Substitution. Jesus doing something in our place so then we can take His place. Jesus coming to connect with us so we can connect with Him. So Jesus is baptized here as if He were a sinner in need of cleansing. Now, he does exactly what any other sinner did here. He goes in the water as if he needs cleansing, as if he needs repentance. And, of course, he doesn't. But he does get baptized in our place. He comes into the water to be washed as if he were dirty, but he's not dirty. He's clean. But we are dirty. So he comes in our place, in our stead. He did it so we can become clean as he is. He did it so we can have the same relationship with God as He does. And because Jesus takes our place, we can now take His place. And because He takes our place in the water, we can come out of the water and we can hear God speak to us and God say to us, You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. I mean, this is an amazing thing. This is before his ministry even begins. We already have the framework of what he came to do. He takes what is ours so we can have what is his. The perfect person, Jesus, the perfect person, there's nobody more perfect in existence than Jesus. He assumes the place of sinners so that we can assume the place of a perfect person son before God. Now please, please hear me. This is so important and this is at the heart of the gospel. If you follow Jesus, the real Jesus, the way he presents himself in scripture to us, if you follow Jesus, you are a beloved child of God. If you're with Jesus, you are like him before God. The Bible talks about being in Christ meaning you are identifying with Christ. You belong to Him. You are now part of Him. You're in the same category as Him. And if that is true, which what happens when we come to Him by faith, that means everything He is now applies to you. All His riches are now yours. That's why Scripture talks about being co-heirs with Christ. Well, I didn't have any inheritance before I came to know Him. Well, now I have to share. I share in His inheritance. Because whatever belongs to him belongs to me now. Because whatever belongs to me now belongs to him. So he takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness. And we have this this great moment when he comes out of the water and, and the father says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased and the spirit comes to seal, to affirm the declaration. This is who Jesus is in perfect harmony with God. And yet he is coming out of the dirty waters of baptism. Why? Because he's lifting us up. Substitution. He becomes like us so we can become like him. He takes our place so we can take his place. Friends, every Christian needs to hear God's voice. You need to hear God speaking to you God saying to you, you are my beloved child. 
You are my beloved child. God is, God is saying, if you're in Christ, this is to you. This is who you are. You are God's beloved child, and he is well pleased with you. Just as he is pleased with Jesus, this obedient, perfect son, he is pleased with you because you are in Jesus. Do you believe it? I mean, I know what your heart is saying to you because I have the same heart as you. And I know that your heart is doubting that. And I know that your heart is questioning that. And I know that your heart is saying, yes, but. But will you believe your own heart? Or will you believe God? That's the Christian life in a nutshell, right? Am I going to just trust God and, and what he says is true and what he says he feels about me is actually real? Or am I going to reject that and go with my own unreliable, wicked little heart? The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove in this incidence. And, and almost certainly this is an allusion to Genesis 1, verse 2. He's using the same language, the same imagery here. Tells us that at creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was like a bird hovering over this world that is being created by God's Word. And so the baptism of Jesus, in a sense, it gives us a picture of a new creation that God is about to do with His people. This picture of the Spirit once again coming to create. Remember, John said that after me, this other person, this deliverer, this Messiah will come and he will not baptize you with water, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And here's Jesus coming out of his own baptism and the Spirit descends on him hovering like a dove. So those who trust Jesus, those who have identified with him, even as he is identified with us, receive the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit descends on us as a dove hovering over us, ready to create anew. Now, all followers of Jesus experience this new birth. You cannot belong to Jesus and not have his Holy Spirit. That's impossible. And so when God calls you to follow Jesus, and you believe and you trust him and you follow him, the Holy Spirit is already in you. He's already making you new. We all experience this new birth where not only our guilt is taken away, washed away and cleansed, but also we're given a new heart, we're given a new mind, we're given a new nature, We've, we're babies in Christ, we've been born again and now we're living this new life. Now we're still wrestling with our old life, we're still wrestling with our old heart, yes, but we're being recreated in God's image again by the Holy Spirit. Jesus takes our place so we can take his. He becomes sin, although he was sinless, he knew no sin. So you can become his righteousness. So you can have God. So you can have life. So you can have forgiveness. So you can be adopted into his family, brought into his home, be placed at his table. So you can have the Holy Spirit making you new. That's the beginning of the gospel. Substitution. Jesus going into the water to lift you up. And finally, we need to see Jesus in the wilderness. Verses 12 through 13. 
the Spirit immediately, that's his word, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. What's going on here, right? I mean, there's a triumphant baptism is coming out of the water. The Spirit of God descends on him. Father says, this is my beloved Son. And then that same Spirit says, I'm taking you into the wilderness, into the desert, so you can be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now, here's why it happened. Jesus is identifying with us, taking our place. is not just the symbolic baptism, going into the water, coming out of the water. Oh, no. Jesus assumes the full human experience. And he identifies with us by suffering with us and for us. So he goes to the place where we are most broken, where we are most needy. He goes to, into the place where we are most dependent on God. Now, what is a wilderness? I mean, certainly in literal sense, it's a place of scarcity. It's a place of need. It's a place of dependence on God, right? But of course, biblically, there's, there's vivid symbolism of the wilderness being a place where, where people met with God because in their dependence, they sought His grace. Because in their brokenness, they received healing. God dealt with His people in the wilderness for 40 years, working with them, counseling them, teaching them, forming them into a nation, a covenant people of God. And so Jesus goes back there. The Spirit takes Jesus into this place of of need is a place of brokenness, a place of suffering, and yet a place of grace. Because in the wilderness, Jesus is able to identify with us fully. And of course, we know that later there will be another, a greater wilderness for him to go into. A wilderness of not just suffering, but death itself. When Jesus would go to the cross, this was the ultimate experience of wilderness, the ultimate experience of identifying with us, not just symbolically, but fully, suffering for our sins, dying for our sins, being separated from God from our sins. In the wilderness, God becomes vulnerable. I mean, Jesus, for 40 days, he is hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, he's hot during the day, he's freezing at night, and then Satan tempts him to give into sin and stop this nonsense of obeying the Father and trusting the Holy Spirit. Is redemption of the world really your job, Jesus? Time and time again, Satan comes to him with new temptations, hitting different parts of his heart, pulling on different strings, and yet Jesus perseveres. He goes into this place of suffering and grace, in the place of scarcity and, and brokenness and yet dependence on God. And through his suffering, he brings us grace. There's an interesting parallel here. The presence of Satan, animals, and angels reminds us of the garden the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve gave into temptation. Now, it wasn't even the wilderness. It was the beautiful garden. And they couldn't handle the temptation that Satan brought to them. And because of their disobedience, sin enters the world, and the world becomes a wilderness. And that's where Jesus comes. 
Jesus comes into our world unprotected, vulnerable, risking things, open to us, able to be broken and hurt, not just symbolically going into the water, out of the water, but really experiencing everything that we experience as sufferers and sinners in this world. Are you in the wilderness? Very few people become to Jesus, come to Jesus and become Christians without a wilderness experience. Very few people get a real faith in Christ without walking through the wilderness with Jesus. You know, we are, we, we are prone to think that we can sort of handle life on our own. We are prone to fix our own problems. And even sometimes in the worst of circumstances, we think this is not as bad. I can get out of it. I mean, I just need just another break and, and everything will be fine. I mean, that's sinful. We're, we're thinking as sinners independent from God. And of course, it just gets worse and worse. And finally, at some point, you have to get to the point where you say, I can't, I can't fix this. This is beyond me. This is, is breaking me. I, it's crushing me. I can't, I can't figure this out. And this is when many people turn to God. Because they finally see themselves as they are in the wilderness, dependent on God. In a place of suffering, they discover grace. That's how many of us come to know the gospel. This is why I think Mark is saying this is the beginning of the gospel. You have to see yourself in the wilderness, and you have to see Jesus there with you. You have to place yourself there and acknowledge that you are there, and then discover grace and discover that Jesus is there. He's there. And, and whatever wilderness looks like to you, and I, and I know there are many, many options in this broken world, and many of them we create for ourselves and some are thrust upon us by others. Whether it's physical health, whether it's financial struggle, whether it's relational conflict, whether it's intellectual doubt, whatever it is, I mean, wherever, wherever you are, where you're hurting, you're struggling, you're confused, you don't know what's next, Jesus is right there. Because right after he identified with us in baptism, right after this great proclamation, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit of God coming down on him, affirming him as the Messiah, the Spirit takes him into the wilderness to be with us, to experience our pain and our sorrow and our suffering. And so whatever, whatever you're dealing with, and, and this may be real suffering. This may be real pain. And so acknowledge that. Acknowledge that I am in the wilderness. But also acknowledge that Jesus is there. And that in that suffering, grace is offered to you. And because Jesus went through it, because Jesus went through everything that you are going through, he understands and he offers grace. I mean, it's an amazing thing to know that other people understand. I mean, to be with like-minded people or people who have gone through similar experiences is incredibly healing. I mean, you know that. Now, Pastor Dave and I were, were a chaplain, a police chaplain training this week, and, and, and the presenter was, was, there's an organization that helps families uh, that lost uh, police officers in the line of duty. 
And so it's dealing with kids and spouses and siblings and parents and trying to support them, trying to get the right resources to them. And part of what they do is they have these kids' camps where kids that lost their mostly fathers, some mothers uh, in the line of duty, they go and they get to be with kids just like them. And it's really encouraging. And so one kid, this is a story we were told, one kid was just seemed to be so happy to be at this camp. And, and somebody asked him, somebody, do, do you like it here? Is it great? He's, he's like, this is great. I'm so happy to be here. And they asked him, well, what do, you, what do you like? Why is it so fun for you to be here? He said, everybody's dad died here. <laughs> he, he's never been in a situation like that before. Now, back at school, when he would talk about his dad and the, and the gruesome circumstances of his death, People would tell him, you can't talk about it. You're scaring other kids. And finally, he comes to a place where everybody's had the same experience. And, and he says, this is great because everybody understands me. Now I can finally talk about what I need to talk about. Now that's true on, on, on any level in life. When you meet a person who's gone through something you've gone through, you say, finally, <laughs> there's somebody who understands I mean, parents of kids with special needs feel that all the time. You meet another family, you're like, we don't need to explain, you know. There's not a lot we need to talk about. We just get each other. We just, we just know what it's like to raise a child with special needs. And in any other area of life, any other area of struggle, it's the same. Now imagine that it's not just other people who understand you who's had the same experience, but God himself. I mean, imagine God who understands. Where you can bring your experience to him, and he can say, honestly, I know. I know. Jesus is this great high priest, not only because he's divine, and he's, he has incredible power and wisdom, and he can counsel you, and he can forgive your sin, but also because he is human, and he understands, and he can sympathize, Scripture tells us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. So you come to him and say, Jesus, I'm weak, and Jesus says, I know. And you say, finally, I'm with somebody who understands. Finally, I'm with somebody who's hurt like me, who's been broken like me, and he can sympathize with me. Now, these three aspects that Mark gives us frames the gospel. It tells us, you want to you understand the gospel? This is where you begin. You begin in Scripture. Because the Word of God will frame everything that happens. It gives you categories. It, it's prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. Secondly, you see Jesus in the water. Substitution. Jesus becomes who we are, takes our place so we can take His place. He takes our sins so we can take His righteousness. And all of that is going to be fulfilled. Of course, we will see the suffering and the cross and the resurrection. Mark will tell us all about that later. But he sets up the framework. Substitution. And finally, the wilderness, the suffering, place of suffering and grace. This is where you meet Jesus. So how do we respond to the beginning of the gospel? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 15. This is Mark's summary of Jesus' message. When his ministry begins, when Jesus begins his public ministry, this is his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus wants you to do right now. To realize that the, the time is fulfilled. These promises are being fulfilled in Jesus. These, these things that God said are, are true. 
And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's near. It's coming. Jesus will come again and everything will be made new. So how do we respond? We repent. We turn away from our sin. We turn away from our self-sufficiency. We turn away from a life without God. We turn away from our idols. We repent. And we believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God intervened, that God came to rescue his people. And he does that through Jesus, this real Jesus, this person who came who is God and man, who is this king, yet a king who went to the cross, whose throne is not made of ivory, but of wood with splinters and nails and His crown is a crown of thorns. That's the kind of king he is. That's who real Jesus is. And he comes to rescue us, and we respond by believing that message, by believing the gospel and saying, Jesus, what you came to do, I believe you came to do. And you did this for me, and I am yours, and I will follow you, and I am now in you, so everything is true of me as it is true of you. I am the beloved child of God, and God is well pleased with me, and I will believe that. And I will live according to that truth.